Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. To be slow moving in the face of a relatively, a, a world that's really driven by activity I think does mean something. I mean, it's also just how I feel. As, as I said, I'm a slow moving creature in so many ways. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. We're into December, which means that it's the season for the year-end best of lists, like the best books of 2021 or our 10 favorite debuts of the year, or I don't know, like the 10 saddest sad girl essays of 2021. Artists and writers seem to have a lot of really mixed feelings about these lists, both the ones who have to write the lists and the ones whose books do or don't go on them. But I kind of like them. Not because I really believe in calling a list of the best of anything, which seems like a pretty objective language for a pretty subjective thing, 
but because I think it's fun to get a sense for collective taste and how it matches the things I'm loving myself. And it just so happens that one of the books that's a hit on this year's list is one of the books that I really loved this year. It's a novel called Intimacies by Katie Kitamura. It was listed just recently by the New York Times Book Review as one of the top 10 books of 2021. And it made it onto Barack Obama's famed reading list. It's about a woman whose name we never learn, serving as a translator at The Hague. She speaks many languages, but has few and tenuous personal ties. I read it in one big gulp. And so I was excited to talk to Katie Kinamura, who came on to chat about translation, an unburied memory of her parents from her childhood, and why it's hard for her to even call herself a writer. Primarily when I think about Threshold, I, I, I suppose I think about the way I feel when I start to make a piece of work, which is the most optimistic that I'll ever feel <laughs> about the work um, throughout the entire process of making it and then the process of kind of publishing it and putting it out. I think the feeling that there's a boundary that you could cross is incredibly exciting to me. And that's, I always know that I'm, I'm, I, I'm starting a novel rather than not starting a non-novel, if that makes sense, when I, when I have that kind of apprehension of that line. I think it's, I mean, of course, when you think about thresholds, I, I find myself thinking so much about borders and boundaries and these kind of almost geographical terms um, and thinking about terrain and thinking about mapping. And I, I think for me, the feeling I have, I, I suppose one way of describing the feeling is that of writing a novel when it's going well is that you're kind of occupying a, a territory or you're occupying a terrain that you step into a world. And for the hours that you're writing, you're inside of that world completely. And it really engulfs you. Um, and for, you know, for those hours, you're not worried about all the other stuff um, that kind of occupies your daily life. So I, I suppose that's a, that's a feeling that the sense that there's going to be a place that is going to occupy me and that is going to engross me um, for a number of years. That's that feeling is always very exciting. Hmm. How do you, does it just feel like an instinctual thing when that feeling is there or when you imagine that space, that capaciousness to be there versus yeah. not, or is, are there particular things you're looking I mean, for? I, I suppose, uh, you, you know, is that kind of, you know, the, the wardrobe in Narnia, that feeling that at any moment you can sneak off and you can open the door and, and kind of step into this other world. Um, that uh, a kind of uh, an imaginative world, I suppose, it, that, that feels incredibly expansive. And I suppose when I talk about, when, when you say the word threshold, I suppose there's a brief moment. I mean, I don't know how you find it, but I, I feel like there's a brief moment at the start of a project where it feels limitless and you feel like you can you can't even really see the edge of what you're working on and there are almost infinite possibilities and that's always so exciting to me and I think one thing about writing is that bit by bit by bit in the process of committing words to papers that those possibilities do I think necessarily decrease and then at the end of the process you you have the thing and it's a fixed finite <laughs> finite thing and and you know I, I mean my husband's also a writer and we always 
you know, kind of joke that when we're, we're done with the book, we always have this feeling of, is that it? I guess that's it. That's all it is. But I think when I start writing a book, it's almost the opposite feeling. And it is, is that feeling of standing, you know, before an expanse. Hmm. So I, of course, read Intimacies, and I'm so curious what felt like the vast possibilities of that project when you were at the beginning of it. You know, it's, I'm sort mm-hmm. of imagining the way you're describing. It feels like the viewfinder is really, really wide, and then it narrows and narrows and narrows yes. you as yeah. you get through the working on it. What did the wide, widest lens of Intimacies look like? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I mean, it, it's it was interesting writing this book because I think it the voice is relatively continuous with the voice that I used in my previous novel, and so it wasn't that experience of crafting a voice out of out of nothing, so to speak. You know, I I knew when I sat down, I knew the voice that I wanted to work with and the kind of tone I think was already fixed. But I think the the range of I, I suppose there are two things. Um, there was a kind of range of ideas that I wanted to try to get at, which were to some extent moral or ethical in dimension. And then I think the other thing I really wanted to try to do in this novel was um, to create a piece of fiction that felt claustrophobic, because I think that's the the register that I tend to write in. Um, but, but that would potentially open up at the end. And so I guess one way of, of it's it's hard not to write in relation to what you've already written in some respect, I think. And at the end of my previous novel, there's a real feeling of kind of almost paralysis at the end of the, the book. And there's a sense of a kind of real limitation of possibility for the central character. And I think I knew when I started writing this book that I wanted to do the opposite. And I wanted to see if it would be possible, you know, to create a, an atmosphere that would still feel relatively tense and perhaps claustrophobic, but that would at some point make a pivot and open up and become expansive at the end of the book. Um, and so th- I think those were some of the things that I was, I, ha- I, ho- I hoped that I would be able to do in the book when I started writing. It's kind of move this tone and this voice from a feeling of real constriction or claustrophobia into a slightly wider horizon. Yeah, I think that's completely accurate. I mean, I was I was talking to uh, actually to a, to a film director, and he was saying that you know it, it's on the one hand you can have your character have the realization, you know, the scales fall and they have their big, you know, realization of whatever it is. But then the, almost a the more interesting question is, what do you do after that? And I always had this question with this novel of what would it look like to have this character step forward into her life. And I think I was interested in writing a character who was, uh, who occupied a position in the margins to some extent, somebody who was adjacent to the seat of power, but didn't actually occupy it herself. And that would extend, you know, from her career through to her personal life. And I think one thing that I wanted to think about is, is actually, I mean, this sounds like I prepared it for this podcast, but I didn't, didn't, but it is, I think what I wanted to do for the central character is, is to see what it would be like if she were able to step forward across that threshold, if she was able to, I kept thinking of it, like, what would it look like for this character to step into her life? 
What do you understand that to have meant for her? Like what it would look like stepping into her life? Or like what are the various sort of valences yeah. in which that is that sort of like gesture might take place? Yeah. I mean, it, it's 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 all relatively concentrated in the final moments of the book, I think. And obviously on the one hand, there's a a gesture of refusal in that she steps away from her kind of vocation or her job working as an interpreter at this at this war crimes tribunal um, and and where the kind of feeling of implication is overwhelming for her and she no longer feels that she can be part of that system. And I think, you know, um, as Ali Miles says, refusal is also a, a threshold of some kind. And so, you know, that that's a particular, that's one action that she takes. But one thing that was just on a formal level important to me was that throughout the novel, she's speaking the words of other people a great deal, both in terms of her her work, where she's literally speaking the words of other people, and then in terms of the form of the novel, where she's often, uh, there's a lot of reported dialogue rather than direct dialogue. So she's constantly kind of internalizing and then spitting out the words of other people again. And I wanted at the end of the novel for her to speak for herself to some extent. And she she makes a decision which is a compromised decision and a realistic decision, I think, but she makes a decision about her personal life and this particular person who has kind of been moving in and out of it. But she makes a decision to take a kind of risk, which I think for that character it is an action that kind of occupies the same space as the decision to turn down the work um, at the court. Yeah. This is the second book in a row, if I'm counting right, where the the narrator is a translator of some kind. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious why that work is is so appealing to you, like is something that you kind of want to put at the center of, of not just one, but two works. Yeah, I think I have kind of, I have the, the kind of deflecting intellectual answer. And then I think I have the, the true kind of, you know, honest answer. I, I suppose the deflecting answer is that, you know, I, I think as a writer, it's always interesting to think about how channeling voices and how voices pass through you and what it means to have a voice, you know, the words of other people, what it means to, to kind of hold them in your mouth and then to, to eject them again. Um, I suppose in a kind of more personal, on a more personal level, you know, I think I'm actually not terribly comfortable with the kind of position of authorship in some way. I'm not terribly comfortable even calling myself a writer. It's it's something that I really struggle with. Um, and first person for a long time was really difficult for me for this reason, because it seemed to be a voice that carries so much authority and authority is something that I, I really feel I, I, I don't have. Um, and so I think for me to write characters who, who aren't position, aren't occupying a position of authorship feels very natural to me. And it feels like a space that I'm interested in exploring. Um, I think in a separation, the the central character is a translator, but her her husband who is who is absent, he he's the one who's a writer. You know, he's the one who's who's incredibly comfortable being a writer. He's comfortable being in the position of knowing. He's comfortable uh showcasing and displaying his knowledge. And it's really quite the opposite for her. I'm so startled to hear you say that you have a hard time even calling yourself 
a writer? What would you call yourself if not a writer? Well, I think that's the difficulty is I don't really have any other. I mean, you know, I, I, I kind of always use this, this, uh, this anecdote, I suppose, but you know, for a long time when I was coming in and out of immigration, I would never write down writer on my, on my immigration form. I would always write down something like, I don't know, teacher or, or, or something else. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I just didn't feel, I mean, some of that I suppose is, is, is because I think for me, writing a novel is such a private, has for a long time. I mean, I, I think less so necessarily as as I carry on but for a long time was an incredibly private thing for me and it was something that I felt was very much only for myself and I suppose there was even a certain element of shame to it it felt like something that I would scurry (laughs) scurry off to a corner and do and I think now it's becoming easier for me to kind of step forward a little bit more Um, but it did feel like a very private and hidden thing and I think that's probably related to it as well what do you think the authority, you were saying earlier that you don't quite feel like you have the authority or there's such authority associated with being a writer or being an author. What do you feel like exists in the gap between you and that, you and the sort of capital A author? Yeah. Still? Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I, I should add, obviously I have a fair amount of distrust for authority in general <laughs> and a fair amount of distrust for certainty I think and that's the thing that I really don't have I feel like writing is for me a space where I go to be uncertain about things and to to try to figure out what I think about something um which I think I think is that's the case for many many writers I think you know, if you arrive at a project with certainty, you probably won't have much drive to really complete it on some level. I think writing feels like a space where you can afford to allow an idea to unfold and then maybe, you know, fold it back up again and put it away or maybe push it further. Um, but but in general, I think, you know, I, 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 I like the relationship between uncertainty and creative work. And I think, I think certainty you know, it works for some, some writers, I think very well, but for me, it doesn't feel like a space where I can be terribly productive. Mm. Going back to translation for a second, there were two, there was a line in intimacies that I highlighted because I really loved it. And the protagonist is speaking to someone she's translating for. And she says, my job is to make the space between languages as small as possible. Um, and that really spoke to me to the the title of the book of intimacies that languages mm-hmm. can rub up against each other in in an almost spatial way that languages can be intimate with each other that we can try to make translation an active of intimacy mm-hmm. um but this this narrator also also occupies a a web of relationships that are full of what feel like really big gaps between Mm -hmm. what is being said and what is being understood or, or what is being communicated and what is, you know, what's being translated there. Um, And I, I wanted to ask you about how you thought about proximity between Mm -hmm. your narrator and the people around her, um, Mm -hmm. whether linguistic or emotional or otherwise. 
Yeah, I, I love this this idea of language having a kind of spatial or almost physical proximity. Um, I mean, I think I, I thought about, I think I thought about intimacy, you know, a little bit like the word empathy is, is one of these words that is, we're often kind of conditioned to think of it as an unequivocal positive thing. Um, but throughout the novel, as you noted, what the character is really experiencing is proximity and intimacy of multiple kinds, some of which are desired and some of which are undesired. And I think the kind of play between those two things is really what I was thinking about in the title, which is intimacies in the in the plural rather than in the singular. Um, and I think in terms of the kind of, I mean, she she's a character who's an interpreter, I think, it, it, not simply in her work linguistically at the court, but also just in the way she moves through the world. And I think all the time she's caught up in this act of interpretation, you know, she kind of observes people and there'll be one version and then a second version and then a third version. And I think the misinterpretation or the gaps between the interpretation, or maybe misinterpretation is the wrong way of putting it, but the multiplicity of interpretations is really important both to the character and I think to the project. I, I, I like, I like, I like a book. I, I mean, I wanted to write a book where you would feel the movement of this character's mind on the page and you would see her grasping at an idea or an interpretation of something and getting it maybe slightly wrong and then kind of doing it again and again and again and trying to finally achieve maybe on the third or fourth try a kind of approximation of what's actually happening. So the gap between what is happening and the act of interpretation is actually really important. I didn't want, and maybe this ties back to what we were talking about earlier with authority is I didn't, I'm not really interested in writing a character who looks around the world and understands it perfectly at first glance, in part because it's not a kind of psychological space I'm that interested in as a writer, but also because I I don't know very many people who move through the world in that way, in truth. Um, you know, I think I, I love writing in the first person, but I think the kind of perfection of first person narratives means that there's a gap between, you know, the artifice of, of, of fiction writing, of novel writing is really present on the page because people don't actually grasp upon the perfect metaphor, for example, on their first try, it often takes one, two, three, four tries to kind of reach that. And so that, that kind of approximation, those multiple attempts is really central to my sense of, of this particular voice. Hmm. I love that answer. I'm just going to think about it for a second. <laughs> I'm just saying, what did I just say? Did that, it was really just... good. <laughs> I liked it a lot. Uh, I just like, it stumped my, my impulse toward, toward like having a really smooth next question prepared. I, I actually thought if she asks me a question related to what I just said, I'll really be in trouble because I'm not sure <laughs> what I said. I mean, you said this really beautiful thing about multiplicity of meanings and the sort of artifice of fiction or fiction that happens in an eye, a first person fiction in that, like the first person fiction creates this, 
this sense that what we're getting is sort of an un, unmitigated internality, whereas nobody would actually sound like that mm -hmm. on their first try. Um, and that that, I don't know, that multiplicity of meaning is something that also the protagonist struggles with. I, something that I really liked about the novel was the way that she, the the unnamed protagonist, although I keep having this impulse to name her something, but... Oh, do you have that, a name for her? No, I don't. Do you? I don't either, no. <laughs> but I'm open to suggestions. No, I would never. She should stay unnamed. Uh, she's, she's not just a translator, she's a translator at The Hague. And mm -hmm. one of the plot points of this book is that she is translating for somebody who is seeming to be guilty of some pretty atrocious crimes against humanity and her the act of translation for her also kind of gets mixed up in moral uncertainty or this question of her own implication not just in um being the person who's who's translating for this man but also being a part of the world in which his actions are possible mm -hmm. um and so there's not just an ambiguity operating in the book around interpersonal relationships, but there's this kind of broader moral ambiguity that, mm -hmm. that seems to be accessed through, through translation as a metaphor. And I'm curious how you decided to shape that into the book. I know you've said elsewhere that that was a kind of moral vertigo felt like an inciting, I don't know, an inciting impulse for mm -hmm. for this project mm -hmm. i mean I, I i think that's absolutely true it was definitely one of the things that you know when uh, when I, I i talked earlier about kind of setting out and starting the project that was something that i really wanted to explore this kind of question of complicity and implication and i think i wanted to think specifically about how language is part of that and how you know we're implicated by dint of the very language that we use. Um, I think for this character, you know, her her job requires neutrality. And I think um, she thinks of herself at the start of the novel as almost like a kind of, con I think at one point she maybe even says that she's a kind of consciousness-free zone, but she thinks of herself as a kind of depersonalized instrument of the core. And I think over the course of the novel, she comes to understand that not only is she changed by the language that she kind of briefly holds in her body and then speaks, but also she changes that language in some way as well. Um, so I think that was almost, that was one of the kind of formal aspects that I wanted to think about when I was writing the book um, of this kind of question of, of how language, uh, even that purports to be neutral, or maybe especially language that purports to be neutral is actually very much freighted in quite complex questions. Um, and I think with the court, which is loosely based on the International Criminal Court in The Hague, you, you know, I wasn't setting out to write a kind of indictment of the international criminal justice system by any means, but I wanted to think about the fact that it was an institution, that it is an institution. And as such, it works in tandem with other institutions. Um, and I think when I, maybe when I first started thinking about the project, it seemed to me that, you know, this was, I, I suppose I, I was quite naive about, about the 
the court in some ways. And then I think the the more I thought about it, I mean, it it, it there there are great complexities about its jurisdiction, about the range of action it's able to take that have real results in its record and the places where it has um, prosecuted war crimes. So obviously, most notably, United States, China, Russia have not signed the Rome Statute, so they're not kind of they're not under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. And so that means that war crimes perpetrated by the American government, for example, cannot be tried, whereas, you know, any number of African nations have been tried um, in the court. So so that that kind of the reality of when we talk about institutional bias, it's it's not simply a question, I don't think, of personnel, at least in this case. It's not uh, uh, the kind of question of, of of diversifying the personnel at an institution. It's actually really deeply ingrained in the institution itself and the relationships that it has and the kind of scope of action that it's able to take because of other very large and intractable institutions. Um, so I've, I feel like I've now drifted quite far from your your question, but but that that kind of larger question of this this quite small individual and her quite small actions, how they fit into these much larger questions um, and that gap and how we, the cognitive dissonance of that gap, how we struggle to kind of comprehend that gap. That was, that was something that was really interesting to try to write within a novel. I don't know. Forgive me if this is going to sound irritating to you, but why was that something of all the things that you wanted to work on to sort of immerse yourself in the world of, why was that the one for you? Um, do you mean, do you mean the court or do you mean the court or just this question of small action, you know, the small actions of an individual being implicated in these much, much larger systems of, of justice or injustice? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I imagine that's something that many people have been thinking about over the last four to five years in particular, I would think, um, or at least I certainly was something that I was thinking about is, is even more than, than usual. I think it, it felt to me like, I, you know, this novel is set in 2016 and it's, um, in the run up to the, to the Brexit referendum, which is referred to in the novel. Um, but I, I wrote it kind of between 2016 and probably 2019 or 20. I don't know. That's <laughs> it took me a long time to write it, but it, it, it was written over a period of several years. And I think during that that period, I think you know the the question of of complicity and implication and, and how we are part of these larger systems, you know, whether we like it or not, and that the act of disavowal, I think, is quite a complicated one. I think it's you know it's not as simple as saying not in my name or I reject that. You know, it, it's still we are part of these larger social structures as I said, through so many different ways, even just through the language that we use, the language we have access to. Um, so I, I think it, it, in some ways it feels quite personal to me, um, although I, I, I do understand <laughs> the specificity of, of writing a novel that's set in the Netherlands is, 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 is probably more opaque. But I, I did have a, a funny experience writing the book, which I ended up giving to the central character, um, where I had done all the research for the novel and I'd spent a fair amount of time in The Hague and I'd written a draft and then it was only after I finished writing the novel that I realized that I had spent considerable amounts of time in the city as a child and that my 
father had taken his, he was an academic and he took a sabbatical in The Hague. And so I think there was also something quite personal that was drawing me to that location, although I didn't see it until after I had written a full draft of the book. What do you remember now of that time when you were a child in The Hague? I, it, it was a completely magical experience. You know, I my father died quite a long time ago now, I suppose 12, 13 years ago. Um, and I had these very specific memories of our time together in, in The Hague, but I, I didn't know it was The Hague and I couldn't really work out where it was. And I remembered going to a little theme park. I remembered walking on the dunes, running on the dunes with my dad, holding his, his hand and I hadn't been able to place them. And then suddenly I realized it was in The Hague and I called up a kind of Google Maps and I could literally pinpoint where these things had taken place. And it was like watching free-floating memories suddenly slot into place in an incredibly specific and powerful way. Um, and so that was something that I ended up giving to my central character and then I think ended up being one of the emotional through lines of the story in the end. But that was something that was not in the book in the first draft. It was really something that was added in in subsequent drafts. Yeah, the father... Um, the protagonist has recently lost her father at the outset of the book, and that's kind of been the motivating incident that sends her to this job in the Netherlands. And then the f we pick up the thread of the father later in the book mm -hmm. in this scene. And I'm curious, I know you've spoken a little bit before about your own father, and I'm just, I wanted to ask you where where that experience in your life lives in this project. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because I, I think something I think about a lot is how writers metabolize events in their own lives and how quickly or slowly they metabolize them. And I think I've just realized that I do it incredibly slowly. Um, you know, the, my last book and this book, as well, although perhaps to in a different way, but they're both books to me that feel like they're about grief. Um, and, and I think that kind of slow moving grief where it's a feeling of disorientation, um, almost more than anything else. And so, I mean, in, in, in my previous novel, A Separation, it's, it's really there in a quite upfront way. Um, you know, there's these, the, the figures of these professional mourners are quite significant in the novel and they're people who are paid to mourn on behalf of the bereaved and they, they come to funerals and they, they perform these kind of mourning songs. Um, so I think in that novel, it's, it's quite explicitly about grief. And here as well, I think it's something that is touched upon in the beginning and then it comes back at the very end. And so in some ways it's not explicit, but it, it's very much informs the atmosphere of the entire novel, the sense in a way, which I, I find very strange about grief, but is that on the one hand, it's, it feels like a great constriction in your life. But on the other hand, suddenly it is as if anything could happen. It's, it's, you know, it's almost like the worst has happened, therefore anything can happen. And, and that sense that things can be torn down and built up in an entirely different way, I think is, is part of how that character is operating you know she suddenly moves she has no attachments she's very much free floating and she's adrift and I think by the end of the book 
she she kind of drops an anchor or she drops one anchor um and that that is the kind of signals if not an end to her grief then a kind of evolution of it to another phase it's so interesting that you use the word disorientation when you're talking about grief and and so actually also just so much of what you just described sounds like that sounds like the feeling that many people had during the pandemic of, oh my gosh, mm. all of a sudden everything can, everything that I thought was stable can drop away. And mm. now I'm in this space of total disorientation. But if I caught you correctly earlier, you finished this book before the pandemic. I Is did. that right? <laughs> I, did. I did. I did. I had that funny feeling, you know, I, I think I finished it, uh, maybe just before the pandemic started. And then I was getting my edits during the pan at, in the kind of early months of the pandemic. And I thought I could try to change this, but I just don't think I can. And the book's anyway set in 2016. And then it was really interesting because there are a number of books that came out at a similar time to my book. And, and the writers did manage to kind of take in the pandemic. And I would just, you know, I guess this goes back to what I was saying about how slowly I metabolize the world around me. You know, it's, it was inconceivable to me that I could, you know, um, write the pandemic into my book in, in any form um, while I was still in it. And I, I have so much admiration for the writers who were able to kind of very quickly kind of create a, a I don't want to say document, but, but I do want to say document, you know, create a representation of what these, these years have felt like. Um, but that was not me. I finished writing it before the pandemic and I, I didn't, I don't, I didn't change it really during the editing process. Yeah. I can imagine that it would have been tempting to do that, but I also can't imagine how you, how that would have worked in a, in a, in the novel that you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so uh, glad you resisted that flash impulse. forward to, yeah. to 2020. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just one of those like uncanny echoes. There is this sense of the narrator as being somebody who takes action and is moving through her life but as you said is a little bit held back from her life she hasn't quite entered her life and i mm -hmm. i saw that elsewhere she's sort of been described as a passive figure mm -hmm. um i was thinking about that and i was wondering if there was sort of a moral dimension to that to that kind of passivity mm -hmm. that you wanted to be commenting on in mm. this in this work it's it's interesting i i i uh when I was in my 20s, I worked on this uh, documentary series that was about psychoanalysis in cinema, and, and it was with Slavoj Žižek, who kind of would talk about different films. And I remember he had this funny little riff about how in our culture, we're always told to be, you know, we're always encouraged to be doing things in the kind of capitalist mode, the kind of just do it. And he would always say, just don't do it. What about don't do it? Just, just, just be... Be passive. You don't have to be active all the time. Um, and I, I, I mean, maybe that actually went down quite deep. But, but you know, I don't think of her really as a character who's a who's a dropout in any way. But I do think of her as a character who's relatively interested in 
in refusal of some kind, I think. Um, I don't know that there's an ethical dimension to that. Um, and I don't think I would, you know, she's no Bartleby the Scrivener by any means. But, you know, yeah, I mean, that that kind of, to be slow moving in the face of a relatively, a, a world that's really driven by activity, I think does mean something. I mean, it's also just how I feel. As, as I said, I'm a slow moving creature in so many ways. Um, so it, I, I, I don't know that I would be able to kind of pinpoint, and I certainly didn't write it with a particular moral imperative. And I, I, and I do think that by contrast, I think a lot of the book is about how there is this kind of ethical pressure for her to actually do something um, and to kind of take responsibility for whatever her part is and what's taking place around her. Um, but I think I'm, I'm, it's funny, you know, we're really taught to read fiction in terms of action, I think, or, or I certainly was to think about how a character, you know, how plot, the kind of motor of plot, the motor of action, the motor of activity. And I, I think I'm just quite interested in what happens when you, when a character doesn't do what's expected. Um, and that's a kind of action in and of itself, but it takes the form of passivity quite often in my, in my novels. How do you feel about that as a quality in yourself? It's interesting. I'm I'm always curious when somebody puts a quality of their own into their mm. characters, mm. what that says about their relationship with that quality personally. I mean, I I I mean, I, I suppose from reading this novel, you could conclude that it's not a quality I admire terribly much in myself. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I guess it's there's a combination of the way you feel about a, a quality in yourself. And I, I think if if you're entirely resolved, it's probably not useful to write about it in some ways. So I think if I if I felt very resolved about it in my in my own self, then I wouldn't feel the need to put it into a, to explore it within the space of fiction. Um, so I think I don't know if I can say that. I think I don't know. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.